Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome again to Stewart Observatory. Uh, and we welcome those of you watching this podcast on the World Wide Web at iTunes U. Um, this is the 87th year that public evening lectures have been given at Stewart Observatory. And we are very happy that you've decided to come and be part of that tradition. But now I've got to give you the bad news, okay? Uh, it's a clear night, but there'll be no observing tonight. Uh, we had one of our cables that opens the shutter, it runs from the motor to the shutter on the dome, broke. And uh, so we can't open the shutter, and it's on order, the cable's supposed to arrive tomorrow. But because of that, until further notice, the uh, telescope is closed. So there'll be no observing tonight. But the good news that I have for you is that we have a title for our Aronson Lecture. Uh, as you may know, and I'm going to bring down the lights here, uh, once every couple of years we have the Mark Aronson Memorial Lecture in honor of our colleague Mark Aronson, who was tragically killed on Kitt Peak in 1987. And uh, this year's lecturer is Dr. Peter Van Dokum, who is the chairman of the astronomy department at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. But he has given us a title. His title will be The Rise of Galaxies. Okay, and uh, actually he sent me uh, an abstract, which I will link to this so that those of you who are interested in reading the abstract can go to our website and uh, we'll post it and you can read it. And uh, while I have this up, I'll remind you our next lecture is two weeks from tonight on October 27th. Carl Hergenrother from the OSIRIS-REx mission across the street at our friends at the Lunar and Planetary Lab. Uh, this is the big $600 million grant that the U of A got from NASA and it's going to go and uh, pick up asteroid dirt and bring it back or asteroid material and actually bring it back to Earth. So that will be the topic of our lecture in two weeks. Also if there are students that are here um, for an assignment, I am the person who will validate your assignment unless you're in Professor Holberg's class and then he's there and he'll validate your assignments and uh, prove that you were here. So without further ado, I would like to introduce tonight's speaker is Professor Neville Wolf, though we call him Nick. Uh, Nick received his doctor's degree at the University of Manchester in England. And uh, he arrived here in Stewart Observatory in 1974, though I know he visited in the early 60s, because I remember seeing a slideshow uh, about that. But uh, he tells me that the very first year he was here, he actually gave one of these public evening lectures back in 1974, and it was about little green men. So you can see this, this idea of life, no matter what form it takes, seems to um, be part of his psyche. Uh, in the 1980s, he uh, also uh, worked together with Roger Angel in helping develop our mirror lab and the great optical technology that we have here at Stewart Observatory. Um, and in the 1990s, when astrobiology became really cool, I know Nick was ahead of his time thinking about you know, life on other worlds, but uh, he was the director of our node of the Astrobiology Institute here at the University of Arizona. But now Nick is retired, in fact, Two weeks ago, he celebrated his 80th birthday. And yes, and, and uh, so he came to me and said, you know, I'm turning 80, I'd, I'd like to give a talk on that occasion. So uh, without further ado, I uh, 
we'll ask uh, Professor Nick Wolf to give a talk on the title, Life, a Phenomenon Rooted in Astronomy. Nick? Okay, I'm going to introduce you to this uh, picture. Um, over, there it is. Ooh, <laughs> I did the wrong thing now. Let's move back, uh, back. Oh, I can get rid of that. I have to pull, you have to pull the trigger. Okay, now it's gone. Okay, and I, I, I went backwards. Okay, here we go. Um, over here is a stromatolite which is uh, a colony of microbes growing and with sand collecting in them. And up above it, here, is a fossil of a similar set of colonies that's three and a half billion years old and is one of the oldest uh, signs that we have of the origin of life on Earth. There in the middle, Beneath the question, above the question, what is life, is just a fern. Here is a picture of a planetary system taken at two wavelengths with a large binocular telescope. That is the spectrum of Earth showing water vapor in it. The gentleman on your right is me, and this one here is my 500,000th cousin. Whoops, <laughs> okay. I pulled off the... Uh, the microphone, let's get it back, and we'll now move forward, I hope. So I'm teaching a, a course on the nature and origin of life, and it's important because life is what we are. So you wonder, well, what are we teaching? And then uh, as teachers, do we understand what we're teaching? And can the public understand it? And my comment there is, that if I can't explain it to the public, I don't understand it myself. And so uh, I wanted to give this talk because I thought it was a worthwhile topic to discuss with you. You might wonder why it is that you don't have uh, a biologist or a chemist giving this kind of talk, and it's due to the, the, uh, the nature of specialization. Biochemists believe that they are able to understand chemistry of life, but they're not experts on evolution. And uh, biologists think that they are experts on evolution, but they aren't experts on chemistry, and somehow the evolution of life has fallen between them. It is a relatively simple topic, and, uh, and yet you wonder why why so much fuss and problem has been made of it. And I have seen three Nobel Prize winners uh, who were uh, biochemists get caught up in looking at the chicken and egg problem from the wrong direction. And if you look at it from the wrong direction, you can't solve it, you get stuck. And they all got stuck in it. And so I want to show you how to look at it from the right direction, in which case it suddenly becomes very simple. Okay, so the talk divides into, whoops, sorry, back. The talk divides into four parts. What's life? 
that's research going on now. How did life come to be here? And that actually involves a sort of historical uh, track through my past, topics that I've been involved in at various times. How did life get started? That's research now. And when we've understood that, it's appropriate to ask, what, is, what does it mean to be human? So it's all about change. And the Greek philosopher Heraclitus said, a man cannot cross the same river twice. It's not the same river, and he's not the same man. So we're trying to understand change, the nature of partial change. Something stays the same, and something becomes different. And it's easy to understand total change. Water becomes ice. You can see it was liquid. It is now suddenly solid. And that's easy. But partial change seems much harder to, to grasp what is going on. Uh, there we are. So in the year 2003, when we were starting astrobiology, Lynn Margulis visited us. She's a, she was a, a famous biologist in her own right. She was the first wife of Carl Sagan, and she said, where is the theory of the origin of biology? All I see are studies of chemistry. And in this talk, I'm giving an answer to her uh, through Darwin. Life is an evolving survival system. Uh, that is, that the things that Darwin saw about life, that it involved survival, and evolution are the things that are characteristic of life and by which it can be distinguished from everything else. But you wonder, how is it that is able to be different? And it is because life uses carbon chemistry. Carbon chemistry behaves differently. It's what you can call mutable. It can make new links while holding on to old ones and that mutability, that behavior of the carbon atom, is needed for evolution. Now, this is a picture of a carbon atom. And uh, if you will, it holds on. Whoops, sorry, wrong way. Uh, go back. Here we are. Um, it holds on with these four places. And so it's able to hold on to two up here and grab onto something different over here. It's able to continue holding onto something here and change to something else there. The orientation between what was here and what is there is fixed. So it's able to make a particular kind of change just by holding onto something different. We have some words there, wonderful words uh, about hybrid orbitals, which merely tells us that, uh, that physicists don't understand enough about the details in which electrons are arranged in an atom that they can actually make a, a proper computation of this. They just know from experience that the bonds of the carbon atom are like that. Anyway, going on. Mutability, as I said, is the ability to change while holding on to most of what it already has. Two links hold, two links change. Because they're in pairs, they fix the orientation of the new 
to the old. So, this explains three things about evolution. I'm going to go through them one by one. First of all, evolution selects for improvement. Hilaire Belloc had a maxim, if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Uh, oddly enough, the topic that he was concerned about was education. <laughs> and uh, bad education is not recommended. On the other hand, it is possible to improve it, and I hope we do at some point. Anyway, evolution picks up small improvements, and things that get worse get lost, and the improvements get carried forward, and so things tend to get better and better. Hasn't happened very well with education, but we haven't been doing it for millions of years yet. Anyway, this is one of the things that life is different because it is so far improved over what we find in non-living things that it's almost hard to recognize the connection. The second thing is the chicken and egg problem, that evolution generates entanglement. And I'll put it like this. If there are two processes needed for life, this one and that one, then they'll both be there. And if only this process worked a bit better, it would be great. This process over here is capable of making that process better, so it does. And then this process here is making that one better, and so it does, and they get thoroughly entangled, and we can't decide which one of them came first. And it's like a chicken and egg, and you look back and you say, well, the chicken had... Uh, came out of an egg, and that egg came out of a chicken, and you follow it, and it doesn't seem to lead anywhere. Understanding is still possible by exploring how it started, and it started in the following way. At one point, there was a reptile, and reptiles also lay eggs. And reptiles are faster if they have hollow bones. So reptiles developed hollow bones because those ones got the food better. And then reptiles were better when they stayed warm and could then run faster, so they developed feathers to keep them warm. And then suddenly it became clear that if you, in fact, had hollow bones and feathers and you flapped a bit, you could glide and do other things, and eventually what, what had been a reptile became something that was a bird. And... Uh, and birds, of course, continue to lay eggs, and so then it's not at all surprising that chickens lay eggs and eggs grow into to other chickens. But looking backwards on it, you lose it. Anyway, entanglement is one of the things that uh, is characteristic of life. And the last one is death. Because of evolution, new birth brings new survival capabilities. By the way, I got it all down in writing simply because you're not the only audience that I hope will be able to see this. Sometimes somebody else will want to, and uh, maybe after we're dead. Uh, death is needed <laughs> to, to get rid of those without that new capability. Of course, for animal life forms, family and community use the older ones to help the development of the younger ones, and we build, build up bonds with one another. 
and death breaks those bonds, which is very painful for those of us who are left behind. But the dead live on in what they've done for those who are alive. They remain part of the chain of life. And to my mind, this chain of life is what one could call the kingdom. The kingdom is within you and without you. That's what Jesus said, and I think this is the kingdom. Anyway, we are all beneficiaries of four and a half billion years of evolution and death, both of life forms capable of evolving and producing us and other things, and others which were blind endpoints, but without that full exploration, we wouldn't be here. So those are three aspects of evolution. And now I'm going to talk about survival system because I said life is a survival system. There are a variety of survival systems. There are five kinds that you can produce. The first kind is one that holds together like a stone. You put a stone down there and you come back a thousand years later and it looks pretty much the same unless you put it in a stream bed in which case you suddenly discover that it's got rounded. But it is, it is able to hold on to things pretty well. There are other things that look rather similar. Crystals, but in the group that holds crystals you'll also find fire and hurricanes, all sorts of things that can grow and replicate but they're not alive. Talk more about them in a, in a minute. They're things that can evolve, they can diversify, and the environment selects survivors. They have genes, but they don't have a nervous system. They're things like microbes and plants. There are others, this group over here, that can think, they can sense and move and link the sensations. That's thinking. They develop a repertoire different ways they can behave that's largely based on experience, and that's animal life. And finally, there's the possibility of collecting information, analyzing the consequences before acting. We humans are very good at collecting information, but uh, we mostly act first for immediate gratification rather than considering all the consequences before we act. Uh, we're on the way and hopefully we will we'll evolve a bit further. So, this has sort of been a classification system. If we try to use chemistry uh, to separate these processes, they're all chemical, so there's no separation. If we use reproduction to separate them, only the stone doesn't reproduce itself. If we use this wonderful property, mutability, to separate those. Only the life forms are mutable. If we use nervous systems to separate them, then we and animals have nervous systems, but the plants and stones and crystals don't. And if we use complex speech and writing to separate them, only humans have complex speech and writing. I'm going to move back to these two groups, the non, last non-living group and the first living group, to ask about the nature there. And this is a non-living object that has growth and 
reproduction. It's a tiny crystal called a zircon. The core of it down there is 4.3 billion years old. It originated near the time shortly after when the Earth was molten. Now, zircons are very, very uh, high-temperature melting materials. And so uh, they tend, when they're carried down into the lower parts of the Earth by continental cycling, they don't melt. They sit there in the liquid rock and they grow. And you can see growth rings on this. You can see all of the growth rings. You can also see there are signs where pieces broke off. At times, this stuff would come up to the surface and would be subject to erosion, grinding together of things. And so you've got all sorts of, of uh, growth happening on one hand and breaking happening on the other. And when a piece of this stuff broke off, and had a separate existence, then it too would grow new growth rings, and so you had two where you had one. It's able to replicate. It's not alive, it's certainly as old as life, but it's a sign of the kinds of things that can be complex systems that are not alive, and they work in growing by using both the matter and the energy of the environment. It was the energy that was able to heat up the material that formed those new layers around it. So this is a kind of system we call a dissipative system, but it's not a living system. It's the next stage below a living system. And dust devils and hurricanes and forest fires and so on all belong to this kind of system. So. Zircons and life use environmental energy and material for growth, replication, and destruction. But life, in all those three kinds of groups, the kinds that only have genes, the kinds that have a nervous system, and the kinds that can write, are different because they're made of mutable material, so life could evolve. That points out that there are two aspects to life that separate it from the ordinary things like that piece there. One is that life is a dissipated, whoops, sorry, back. Life is a dissipative system so that it could grow and replicate, in which it's like the zircon. And secondly, it's a mutable system so that it could evolve, and the poor old zircon was stuck there because it was unchangeable. It could only add on molecules of zirconium silicate, and that didn't make any difference to it. Okay. So, we've moved on to section two, how did life come to be here, and there are five key substances of life for a carbon compound. First, there's water. That's the medium in which life develops. Secondly, there are lipids that make membranes. Those are the thin skins that surround cells. They produce the identity. You, know, you surround something with a cell, with a membrane. That's a cell. That's it. You finally got a something. Uh, the second 
amino acids, they make proteins, and you might say, well, what are proteins for? They do, proteins do two very different things. First of all, they make structures. And secondly, you get huge proteins that have a shape, and that shape selects out something to be either put together or pulled apart. It's a, a later development of what proteins can do. And to start, they were just cell structure. There's a stuff called ATP there. It's the chemical that links things together. If you want to build big structures, you've got to link things together. And whereas a crystal can link together rather straightforwardly because uh, like things fit together well with like, with like things, if you've got unlike things, not quite the same, they have to be put together by a kind of gluing process, and ATP is the chemical that does this gluing process, and we'll talk about it in just a moment. And lastly, there is nucleic acid, DNA, you know all about that, that's your genes, and RNA, which is rather similar, and it use, is used to actually put the amino acids together for the amino acids to do their share of further putting things together. Now, I'm going to show you this, and it looks a little complicated, but let me explain. All you're seeing are atoms there, and when you see something like a P, it's phosphorus, and O is oxygen, H is hydrogen, C is carbon, and there are three different parts to this molecule. This is all phosphorus, oxygen, hydrogen, called phosphate, and it acts as a kind of glue because when it's in water, phosphorus, this phosphate manages to lose its electrons and the bits repel one another. And if only they can be broken off, they'll give some energy, and the energy is available for gluing. The thing here is a, is a sugar called ribose, which I've called an assistant. And it's needed because you have to glue something to to something. So this is the stuff that gets glued to, and where it's got these places here, OH, is where the gluing occurs. And finally, there is this molecule here called a nucleobase, which I call a glue selector. It decides where the gluing is going to take place. Now, that is a very simple process in its own, but it can do something else. What happens is that the, here is the glue selector, and this is a phosphate, which is just like that, and the phosphate has managed itself to glue itself to another glue selector, and it's phosphate, and the glue, which has glued itself to another one, and you've suddenly developed a great long chain here, and that is how nucleic acids build together. You have the gluing process, putting the parts together, and they are exactly the same. Here where you have adenine, the molecule is exactly the same as the adenine there. Here's the ribose, it's just drawn upside down from this one, but it's exactly the same. What you've done is use the gluing process to put together nucleic acid. Okay, now the substances that we find in space. This goes back to 1963. We were looking with a, using a telescope hung on the end of a balloon up at 80,000 feet, but it shows 
the spectrum of water in the atmosphere of a cool star. It's actually a huge envelope surrounding the star, and these two absorption features here and here are water vapor absorption features. Not only do we find water there, but uh, about 10 years after that, Fred Gillette, who was uh, later an astronomer at Kitt Peak, found that water ice was absorbing here in a cool region where stars were forming. So not only do you find water around stars, but it got out into space and actually formed ice crystals. And those ice crystals were rather important in the later development that uh, produced molecules. Okay. Here is the spectrum of the Earth with exactly those same two water absorption bands. This was actually taken from the Vatican Observatory on Mount Graham. You say, how did you look at the Earth? Well, we looked at the dark of the moon, and the dark of the moon was lit up by sunlight shining on the Earth, and as a result, we were able to take the spectrum of it and, and do this. And it takes a, either a high-altitude observatory for this, or you have to go up and put your telescope on a balloon or in space. We did another observation from, uh, from Kitt Peak, uh, which, which we weren't specially looking for water, and we could see things like the blue of the sky increasing to short wavelength, the blue color. And over here, we found that the spectrum was higher than expected simply because sunlight reflects extraordinarily well off plants in that wavelength band, and we were actually seeing plants on the Earth from a distance, seeing it reflected onto the moon and coming back down into our telescope. Okay, so we've had water in space. The next thing is carbon, carbon molecules. And the remarkable thing is that most of the molecules we know in space have carbon in them, but it's not straightforward at all. If you look at the small molecules with just two atoms, only 18% of them contain carbon. By the time we've got three atoms in a molecule, two-thirds of them contain carbon. And as we go up, by the time we've got six atoms together, every molecule we know contains carbon. The largest molecules we know in space contain 60 and 70 atoms, and they are entirely made of carbon. So there is a real uh, use of carbon to put structures together, and it comes because carbon is mutable, and so it's able to hang on to what it's already got and add more, and then that hangs on to what it's got and adds more, and you get all these molecules building up. When you look at the spectrum of space, this is about a thousandth of the spectrum obtained from the submillimeter telescope on Mount Graham. And the red line is the spectrum. And then this black stuff is just identifying what molecules are associated with these peaks. And there are 35, uh, 37 identified features there, and every single one of them contains carbon atoms. 
That's just, as I said, about a thousandth of the spectrum. So there's a lot of complex carbon atoms in space, and you might wonder how they form, and they wouldn't form if there were a lot of oxygen, but we just saw that the oxygen forms ice or carbon dioxide, which also freezes out. And when they've frozen out, then carbon's available in the remaining material and is able to then form all these compounds. Okay. Last thing, the stuff of the earth silicates. And uh, this is from when I was at Minnesota. We started off by discovering the spectrum of cool giant stars, had this strange bump over here, and we identified that bump as being the emission due to a cloud of silicate dust surrounding the star. Not surrounding everything, but at least surrounding these cool stars. And then later, we looked around the trapezium region of Orion, a region heated up by O stars, very hot stars, and there, lo and behold, was the same stuff glowing in the dust. So we said, well, we've got to look at a comet because they have tails. And we looked at Comet Bennett, and lo and behold, it too was showing exactly the same silicate. And silicate is the stuff that makes up most of the Earth. So there we have ingredients, water, carbon compounds, silicate, all there in space, ready to come in. As I say, silicates make up the bulk of the earth. Water makes up oceans and lakes. It's needed to be the medium in which life can form. And complex carbon compounds were needed to start life. They all came from space, and they all sorted themselves out wonderfully. So, why? Well, Carbon compounds can only be manipulated and sorted out at temperatures over at which water is liquid. It just doesn't work out well any other way. And water helps molecules self-separate, as you'll see. So those things neatly fit together. The silicates form the earth, the water makes oceans and lakes, provided it's warm enough. And if one of these places where all that material is collected is out there in space. It'll be a frozen lump and the water will be solid and nothing will happen. On the other hand, if there's heat from a star and then all this collection forms a planet, it's going to work out pretty well. So when we get a planetary system forming, carbon-rich matter, from meteorites and comets will land on the planet's surface and there'll be an opportunity for life to develop. All straightforward. And this is a, a meteorite showing you the kind of thing that even today is still landing. It has, it's black because it has a lot of carbon compounds, the lipids and amino acids. It's got silicates and water and modified materials. It can be considered either as a sign of how life started, or as a horrible mess. And that was the nature of the problem of originating life. You had to turn a horrible mess into a sorted out process. That was what evolution of life had to do. So once we knew that there was uh, 
there was a likelihood of planets with life being around other stars. We started designing devices that would look for such life. Terrestrial Planet Finder, this was such an example, but NASA ran out of money, so we dropped it. But fortunately, we've been able to continue work with the, uh, the Large Binocular Telescope, and this is uh, the observation that I showed you on the first slide. There are one, two, three, four planets around. There's a star here which has been blotted out to, so that it doesn't flood the picture with light, and so that you can see the planets. Over there, the blotting out didn't work quite as successfully, but nonetheless, it's still, still sufficiently clear that there are the four planets. These are planets much bigger than Earth, and it's going to take a while before we get devices in space that see Earth-like planets, but we can see that there are indeed lots of planetary systems around, and so there is a chance of that continuing. Okay, so now I move on to the origin of life, and for most people, the problem is this. How? How the heck did it start? And I've told you, lots of people get into this, and they get tangled up because they're trying to look backwards, and they say, well, we come to the chicken, and there's the egg, and, the chicken, and you never get out of that. So how do we move forward? Well, there are principles of development, and I'm going to move us down. There are seven steps here, and I'm going to go through them one at a time. Materially, materials, carbon compounds, naturally make cell-like structures. These are examples of such cell-like structures. They contain water on the inside, water on the outside. They've been dyed with a fluorescent dye here, and you can then recognize them. There are large ones, and then there are some small ones, which are so small they don't have water on the inside. And what they're made of are these lipid molecules, which have the egg-like shapes here on the top, being parts that like being close to water, and the oily parts in there, well, you know how oil behaves. It keeps away from water, so it stays in there. And then there's water on the inside as well. So we've developed a structure there. You just take a piece of that Murchison meteorite, put hot water on it, and this stuff comes out and forms these things by itself. Very straightforward. We know what will happen there. Second step, carbon compounds separate around the surface of these structures. Now, with membranes and water, there are three environments. There's the oily middle, there's the water on one side or the other, and there's sitting on the edge. And just like those compounds that are lipids and have one part that wants to be in the water, and another part that wants to be in the oil, there are other compounds called, called amphiphilic that I've called here half and half, and the boundary selects the half and half materials for a precise placement. They're pushed one way and pulled the other, and, uh, and it actually straightens out the direction in which they are oriented. They're solidly tied down, just ready to be glued together by something that comes along in the right way. 
The third part, phosphate makes stronger surfaces. Okay, this is, I already told you, phosphate works like glue. There's the glue part, the phosphate, and there's a, an assistant. It's a different kind of assistant. This time it's a different sugar called, um, called glycerol. And then these chains here, there they are, are very much like the chains that you form when you just take the material of Murchison meteorite and dunk it in hot water. What happens is that volcanoes produce dust. The dust has energized phosphate. When the energized phosphate comes along and gets near these things, lo and behold, this is the stuff that forms. So it's very straightforward and natural. It's just what happens, and then these turn out to make much stronger membranes, stronger structures around these things that are going to become cells. And as a result, they are very good at some things, but nothing can get in or out. So this is the sugar and the phosphate. Gluing seems to require both the phosphate and the sugar, and I told you why. The sugar is something to get attached to. The phosphate is something that energizes the process. In this case, glycerol is the sugar. It links single-chain materials to make double chains. But the linking of amino acids next required a different sugar. That was the ribose that I showed you in ATP and in the RNA. It's the sugar that got selected. So the need for ingredients that cross the boundaries uh, to develop structures. Okay. These structures are called alpha helices, a membrane that couldn't let needed ingredients in or waste products out just wouldn't survive. Something that could do better without competing in gathering new materials and uh, ever, whenever the old kind was destroyed, the parts would go and tend to form the new ones that were able to take in new products and, uh, and throw out waste. So this favored the building of structures that would corkscrew their way through the membrane and so make on and off channels needed to let needed materials in, unwanted ones out. And as I said, there are certain amino acids that would have collected at the surface of the membrane, and when they linked, they would have made such a corkscrew structure called an alpha helix. Now, say that, well, that's fine. Have you got any evidence that that would occur in that way? Well, here is a, a membrane, and, whoops, sorry, go back. And there are the alpha helices, a whole bunch of them. They tend to get pulled together develop a core, often the other parts of the amino acids get involved, but the net result is you've made a little cluster of things with a channel in and out. The growth process for these proteins also adds nucleic acid molecules to each other. Showed you, it's gluing. If you've got glue around, it's like having a toddler gluing things. He not only glues things to other things, he glues them to himself as well. Okay? And so here we are. 
There, I remind you again, there are the gluing molecules and there's a whole set glued together and what they've done is they have created a chain of nucleic acid. There's a needed sugar which survive under the right conditions. In particular, five carbon sugars do that if borate is present. And you say, wow, you mean you've got to have borax together with this stuff? How can you possibly get that? Well, what I'll remind you of is in Death Valley, there's borax there. There's an old volcano up at one end, and there are fresh water springs that flow into it. There's at least one place where such conditions has developed, and in early Earth there were likely others. There, the last part of those molecules, one of the bases, the things that I, 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 uh, I, I said were the selectors, they act as floats and sinkers on a fishing line. You know, it's, you move the hook to the right place by having a float go one way and sinkers pull it the other way until you've got it just at the right height. If you're going to glue together the amino acids, you've got to glue them together at the height where they need gluing. This is how the process works. So, could that possibly have been right? Here is what is called the genetic code. This is how nucleic acids today select amino acids. How the pieces of, this is like the bits of genes select the pieces of the protein one by one to add together. And over here, in this particular column, these and only these are needed to make alpha helices. Right today, they're still selected. Over here, with the adenine, are the ones that are needed to make the linking bits that go through the water. And also here is the only place where there's a start code, start putting things together, and two of the three places which stops the building. In other words, the process had to have started off like this. It's there, still showing today. So, I said further growth produces self-replicating molecules. At some point, that paste-pot gluing of the paste to itself started to do something. And here it is that you actually had to add another two bases because it takes four to make DNA and RNA. And there were two, guanine and cytosine. And after they had been picked by themselves, because the uracil is very good at somehow picking those molecules that like to be in the membrane, and the adenine is very good for picking the ones that like to be in the water, it turns out that uracil is not very good at selecting. Every so often, instead of picking up adenine, it picks up guanine. So if there's any guanine, was any guanine floating around there, suddenly guanine would turn up in the nucleic acids. And after it had turned up in the nucleic acid, it had to sort of match the ladder pattern, the width, and there was 
another molecule which would then fit very well and do that, and that was cytosine. And that's how you ended up with the four bases in the nucleic acid. So, these are the principles that we've been through. Materials naturally make cell-like structures. Carbon compounds separate around the surface. Phosphate makes stronger surfaces. The need for ingredients that cross the boundaries develops structural proteins, alpha helices. The growth process for these proteins add nucleic acid molecules to each other. Further growth produces self-replicating molecules. And we suddenly found how biology could have started. Now, after that, I don't have to worry at all because Charles Darwin explained that once you got replicating things, you could then start growing all kinds of stuff by mutation. So this is all we needed for the start. It was mutable change and survival all the way. So we come to a final part on being human. I must tell you a story. When I was four years old, I was taken to Regent's Park Zoo in London with my elder sister. She was three years older, and there was a bench on which you could have your photograph taken with a chimpanzee. And my sister immediately rushed and sat down in the middle of the bench and cuddled the chimp like that. And he, in turn, cuddled the chimp, cuddled her like this. Well, when it came to my turn, I'd been brought up in England. I hadn't been introduced to this animal. So I sat down on this far edge of the bench, turning my back on the chimp. And the chimp, being a nice social animal who understood what he ought to do, sat down on this end of the bench, turned away from me. <laughs> they're, they're very smart creatures. On the other hand, there is a difference to, that can be attributed to what humans have learned and handled in something like seven million years. We've been walking, carrying, manipulating with our hands. We developed fire. We developed communication. We could talk. We made verses to remember because we didn't write in those days. We developed farming. That was just after the Ice Age. I've gone through an awful lot of time. Right here, we've suddenly come up to about uh, 8,000 years ago. We developed food crops. We developed animal husbandry. We developed making homes. We started with caves, and then uh, seeing the use in which the, the ground itself could provide, we dug into the ground and made pit houses, and we realized that we could actually sort of pull the ground up and we made walls and we ended up with houses. Uh, we started recording information. We learned to, to write. We've now learned to make electronic writing. We developed science, technology, and medicine. And I must say, as I look at that now, all that technology development, I think that the one most important thing that we developed was birth control. Because when we bred and just produced humans at a great rate, there were three things that happened. One was called famine. 
another that developed because we were fighting over what there was, was war. And the third was that under those difficult conditions, we developed a huge amount of disease. And we have a chance now to get rid of those terrors of the human race. Okay. Unfortunately, the development of social organization has not progressed as much. We do some cooperating. We also do some cheating. And the top animals largely get what they want. On the other hand, we haven't been doing this for terribly long. We haven't learned, we've, well, rather, we've only recently learned what drives humans, that punishment doesn't work well at all, that uh, a little bit of encouragement helps in cooperation, and if we can only apply these principles successfully and teach our students at a very early age to start thinking, to realize that uh, they're reciprocal things, they should think of people as just like themselves and that uh, you don't think uh, that uh, for everybody else in the, in the surroundings, when they get something, it's a handout, and when you get something, it's what you deserve, then, uh, then you'll, you'll finally get some cooperation. So, past humans have given us most of what makes us different. They saved their best food for planting, best animals for breeding, even to the point of starving themselves. They learned the hard way, many died young, and what we've received produces a debt to add our part and pass it on to the future. So we shouldn't ask what society can do for us, we could ask what we can do for the development of intelligent behavior. So where have we been? We've asked, what is life? Life is a range of mutable, dissipative systems. We've asked how life came to be here, that planets are needed for our kind of life. The universe produced water, silicates, and complex carbon compounds and stars. And these were gathered with, when the solar system formed. How did life get started? It was a lot of steps, one after the other, but natural selection process all the way. And what is being human? Being human is standing on the shoulders of our ancestors, and we have a great deal to thank them for. So, the talk doesn't end here. What you, your children, and their children add is also part of the story. Thank you. much Nick and we do have time for questions do we have any questions for our speaker yes at what point did evolution begin did it begin right at the very beginning or is there a point at which it had evolved well, if you if you ask the question where did the complex carbon compounds arise I've already said, in interstellar space, there were processes that had to separate out ice crystals 
and solid carbon dioxide to allow the carbon atoms to make these complex things. So evolution began, began long before there was life and long before there was Earth. It began out in space. And part of the difficulty that people have had in trying to understand the origin of life is that they think that evolution only began after we had genes. And that's totally wrong. All of this development I've been describing to you was the development before there were genes. Other questions? Okay, we do have one up here. Just Professor, you, you've explained so simply how <laughs> carbon and uh, all these other uh, elements have stumbled into themselves and, uh, and become what we are today. It's, it's quite, puts things in interesting perspective. <laughs> have you considered, though, that this all happened in the, in the kind of environment that existed on Earth? And are there other materials like silicon have been, I think, proposed? maybe as another basis for a similar process to arise, maybe in a different kind of environment somewhere else in the universe. The silicon atom is like a carbon atom with arthritis. <laughs> it has four bonds, but oh, it's so hard for them to move and adjust. And so as a result, when silicon can grab onto molecules, it grabs onto them very well and forms things that can stay solid at very high temperatures, but it just doesn't have the flexibility to form the compounds that we have found needed for life. I would be astonished if silicon did manage to produce a life form simply because of this. Silicon has a lot more electrons around its nucleus than carbon does, and they are the thing that seems to freeze it up. On the one hand, you're talking about random atoms. Yes. Banging into each other, gluing yes. together according to the bonds of the electrons and so forth. On the other hand, you're talking about selection which seems to me to also be random in a way. Random yes. in the sense, what are the conditions what, today? What, what are the, are conditions the things that drive random processes into selection? Right. Is that That's the question? question. Yeah. Very good, yes. Um, it is a combination of behaviors of materials. Some will be freeze before others, some, some will want to be uh, away from water, some will want to be close to water, some will want to be on the edge. These are the kind of natural selection processes that have acted before there were genes. If you actually look at this, the structure of life and ask how improbable it seems that there's been this incredible amount of selection, well, yes, but then you actually go in and you start looking at the individual process and you say, oh, well, I understand how this bit happened and this bit, and eventually you say, well, I think I understand it. It's like Hobbes. He, uh, he opened a book of Euclid in the middle to see geometry, and he said, 
this is impossible. And so he started working his way back towards the beginning and eventually when he got to the beginning, he said, I believe it. That's what this is like. Yes, I, <clears throat> I was wondering what you think about the, the panspermia hypothesis, that life would form on one planet someplace and then spread out from there. Places where life could form are very far apart. Space has some rather nasty things in like cosmic rays that can destroy uh, complex molecules. I would think in general, molecules can make their way through, but the complexity of life forms that needs to be retained for them to stay a viable life couldn't, so I would be astonished if panspermia worked. I actually am going to ask a question, because I was motivated by the question about whether silicon would be a suitably mutable atom, in which you think not. What about another solvent other than water? For example, think of Titan, where the liquid is ethane or methane. Could, could that be a place where life could... If you have an organic liquid, it behaves differently than water does. What happens is that the water molecule has, uh, has electrical charges build from one end to the other, and as a result, you produce the structure that, that, uh, that holds water together and pushes oil away. So if you make, if you take stuff uh, like uh, liquid methane, which is like an oily stuff, you've got to turn everything inside out. And you say, could you possibly do it? And when you try and turn those lipid molecules inside out, what happens is that the spacing between the parts suddenly drops by about a factor of two and a half and there is no real room to manipulate amino acids in that space. So I would be astonished if Titan did manage to find its way through to do that. On the other hand, uh, it's a novel environment. We don't have experience of this. We certainly haven't experimented. So it may be, I just wouldn't expect it at the start. All right. What, we'll take one more question, and then that'll be the end. And let me get you the... Uh, we can also be thankful for the death of stars such as supernovae that uh, uh, eject carbon out into the interstellar medium, which then can be combined and produce these complex organic compounds. However, pertaining to the uh, other questions, uh, like with silicon and that, but let's be closer to organic chemistry. How about the possibility where instead of having uh, adenine, thymine, guanine, and uracil, etc., that you perhaps have maybe slightly different base, uh, bases on other planets and that maybe sets life on that uh, planet on a different trajectory that is in itself self-consistent and, and um, uh, viable? There are a huge number of bases that could work uh, in transfer RNA, for example. Not only the four bases that I have talked about, 
but there are another six or eight, I think, strange ones that do turn up. And if you were to start asking, what would you get if you ha were in a different environment and maybe it had different bases, you might well find these other bases there. And indeed, uh, my friend Steve Benner has actually created different bases and actually transferred them into human DNA. So it can be done. Different bases are entirely possible. There wasn't enough time to select uh, exactly the right base. Uh, obviously, life may do with what it found. And uh, if there were another place, I, I would bet that many things were the same, but I wouldn't bet on the bases being the same. All right, I'd like to remind you again that our next lecture is two weeks from tonight, the 22nd of October. Carl Hergenrother from the OSIRIS-REx mission will be here to tell us about that exciting project, which will go to an asteroid and uh, swoop down, grab a chunk of the asteroid, and bring it back to Earth. Uh, there is no telescope observing tonight. I will stamp student assignments here. I hope to see some of you again in two weeks. And let's thank Professor Wolf one more time.